Twitter. I'm Stephanie McNeil. He is David Mack. And you are watching the most insane edition of AMTDM of 2018 so far. And maybe ever. I, we get to be here. I think the hype is worth it. Yesterday was absolutely insane news-wise, right? There was so much going on. Yeah, I actually left work right before the uh, news Mageddon slash news avalanche started, <laughs> yes. and I was really happy I left. It. Uh, I had left too. I was supposed to go home and try to nap, but I couldn't. I was on my phone on Twitter just refreshing, enjoying all the like fresh dank memes that were coming up, uh, because it was just so much, right? There was so much. Here is a tweet from our reporter Julia Reinstein that summed up just how crazy yesterday was. <clears throat> Michael Cohen, Post Malone, Azalea in Elon's home, Nazi prison, God deport, verdict time for Manafort, we, we didn't start the, the fire. fire. That's, all, that's all we're allowed to that's sing. That's all we're allowed okay. to sing. But that, yeah, that sums it up. It was insane. Julia, you are so good at <laughs> rhyming. She loves them. We yeah. have one more from the president that'll kind of do serve as a little uh, way into this. If anyone is looking for a good lawyer, I would strongly suggest that you don't retain the services of Michael Cohen. I love a bit of like presidential sarcasm when you know your world is falling apart uh, and all your former aides are pleading guilty and are being convicted of crimes. Pretty good times. Uh, Twitter, we want to hear from you. Where were you when the news avalanche began yesterday? Uh, tweet us using the hashtag aim to dm And what are your thoughts on it? I'm just, uh, do you guys understand it? Do you, are you completely over it? I'm really curious how the general public is reacting to this news avalanche because I'm worried that people are just so checked out that it's not even going to register. That's true. Well, one of our crew members here, she was just saying that she, you know, doesn't have the, all that kind of push notifications turned on. So she was kind of like, what's going on? What's happening? And anyway, I felt like it was, uh, I was drowning. Uh, we want to get to the news, so let's go. Here's a tweet from Bloomberg reporter Justin Sink that cuts right to the chase. Who boy, Cohen says he violated campaign law at the direction of candidate. Cohen says he acted for the purpose of influencing election. Cohen violated campaign law at direction of unnamed candidate. Hmm. Yes, the president's personal be? attorney and longtime fixer, Michael Cohen, has admitted to breaking the law and he implicated his boss. BuzzFeed News legal editor Chris Geidner joins us now to break all of this down. Chris. <sighs> So, are you uh, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> We're so happy to have you here to talk about this fun yes, day. Yes, we need your help. So, okay, please, in layman's terms, what exactly did Michael Cohen plead guilty to yesterday? Yeah, I mean, this, this was a big deal. Uh, Michael Cohen, the president's longtime lawyer and fixer, pleaded guilty to, to eight counts. Uh, five of them were related to uh, tax evasion from, from five various years over, over the past half decade. Um, then he also pleaded guilty to a charge relating to uh, sort of inflating his income on a, his financial status on a bank loan. Uh, but then the, the two that got a bunch of attention yesterday, he pleaded guilty to two campaign finance violations, uh, one of which had to do with the Stormy Daniels payment. And the other one had to do with the payment to Karen McDougal uh, for by uh, American media 
to the 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 uh, $150,000 that they paid her for her story that they ne- then never ran a story. The, right, right. The catch and kill agreement. Those campaign um, finance violations, Chris, specifically, because Trump tweeted this morning, Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to two counts of campaign violation, finance violations that are not a crime. I mean, that yeah, doesn't he, make sense, right? He, he's just... Just saying words there. Okay, um, words. they are crimes, and uh, <laughs> the the Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to them. And the the really big thing is that he said in court that he did those he he did those crimes at the direction of the candidate. Yeah. Uh, who we know to be Trump. Yes, I want to get to this tweet from former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. Michael Cohen in courtroom in Southern District of New York under oath declared that the president directed him to commit a federal crime. I like that tweet because it cuts right at the heart of things. Chris, what did Cohen say Trump ordered him to do? Yeah, he he said that that he ordered him well that 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 he had directed him to take these actions to basically keep these stories from getting out into the public and the 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 second part of that that was important is that it was done for the principal purpose of influencing the election um and, and that that's that's huge and that that is i mean this was done if you look through the the because he pleaded guilty it's it's called an information and not an indictment um but when you look through the facts of what they say they 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 say that this was a, an agreement that that was was basically set out in in August of 2015 that uh, that that the the chairman and editor of of this media company that's unnamed in the indictment but that other reporting surrounding this uh, is that this is about the the Karen McDougal American media National Enquirer stuff um, that, that they basically agreed they'd look for these situations and alert Michael Cohen to them. And Michael Cohen agreed that that is what happened and pleaded guilty to doing that. We also have to look at this tweet from Stormy Daniels herself. <laughs> How you like me now? <laughs> Hashtag Team Stormy. Chris, so this was essentially a big vindication for her and her attorney, Michael Avenetti, wasn't it? I mean, it, it it is in a sense. I mean, the 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 fact of the matter is that that, that we sort of knew this is what what had happened. There there wasn't. I mean, the big thing that happened yesterday was that Michael Cohen admitted it, and that he admitted he did it at the direction of Trump. Um, the, those are the big. I mean, lots of the facts. I mean, like Stormy Day. I mean, from from the time of the Wall Street Journal's first stories about this payment back in January, uh, sort of every fact that we've learned has has really proven proven their argument pretty pretty accurate. And and now, I mean, the thing that Michael Avenatti said yesterday on Twitter was that his hope is that now they'll be able to move forward their case to to formally toss formally toss out uh, the the hush agreement. Um, and he's hoping to, uh, of course, depose Trump in his effort to do so. Well, let's talk about this plea deal specifically that Cohen reached, because there's nothing in here, is there, about uh, having to cooperate with the Mueller inquiry? No, there there is not any cooperation agreement in it. But I mean, let, let's keep in mind that that 
obviously Michael Cohen is not the the most reliable witness. Um, he he's I mean he's pleading guilty to a lot of related like pre-existing crimes. I mean there is a question of whether or not these are related. Like the the false statement to the bank for the home equity line of credit that he made uh, is the home equity line of credit that he drew down on in order to pay Stormy Daniels. So these things are all related, um, but they, I mean, this was pre-existing activity that, that he had engaged in. Right. Um, and he, he's not necessarily the, the type of person you want front and center on the stand. Right. Uh, but, but what he's saying is that the president directed him to do this. And obviously Lanny Davis, uh, his, one of his attorneys is is going on TV saying that he has more of interest to Mueller and the special counsel's investigation. And I think that that it's going to be really interesting to see. Um, he, he doesn't sound like he needs a cooperation agreement in order to agree to testify right. uh, to the special counsel. Well, we're going to talk about that in a second, so please stick around, Chris. But we need to reference this tweet from The New Yorker's deputy news editor, Eric Latch. Uh, reporters, if you are tweeting about criminal charges, please specify Manafort or Cohen. Yeah. Got to be careful there. I mean... It sounds crazy to say, but this wasn't even, it was one of many yes. stories yesterday. So we got to talk about this other one. You would one. think that it would be, you know, the biggest story of the day, but here is a tweet from our own Zoe Tillman. After nearly four days of deliberating, a federal jury in Virginia found former Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort guilty of eight felony charges for a string of financial crimes and hung on the remaining 10 counts. Zoe was in the courtroom for the entire Manafort trial and she joins us now. Zoe, uh, we've been trying to talk to you for weeks, but you've been in court, so <laughs> welcome, finally. Uh, thanks for having me. I have to say I was in a courtroom yesterday with no phone or computer, so I don't know what you guys are stressing about. It seemed <laughs> okay. really like a quiet day that sounds lovely. as far as I was concerned. That sounds lovely. <laughs> okay, uh, Zoe, for those of us who can't keep all this straight, what crimes was Manafort found guilty of? So Paul Manafort was found guilty of sort of three buckets of crimes. Um, the first was failing to disclose income to the IRS and his tax returns. Um, he was found guilty of basically hiding millions of dollars uh, in profits that he earned from his work overseas as a political consultant in Ukraine, money that, as we learned at trial, he would get from Ukrainian businessmen, uh, transferred into accounts that he controlled uh, in Cyprus. And then prosecutors presented evidence that he would use money from those accounts to pay for any number of things in the United States, everything from custom suits to home contracting to landscaping, and that money as income wasn't being reported to the IRS. So he was found guilty of all five of the tax charges that he faced. Um, he was then separately charged with failing to report his interest in those overseas bank accounts to the federal government, to the U.S. Treasury, which is a separate reporting process. He was found guilty of just one of the four counts that he faced on that front, but he was found guilty by the jury um, in at least one tax year of failing to report those foreign bank accounts. And then finally, he was charged with uh, defrauding a series of banks in 2015 and 2016 
when prosecutors said the Ukraine money dried up, his uh, longtime client, the former Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych, had lost power, had fled the country. Manafort needed money to support his quote-unquote lavish lifestyle, prosecutors said. So he was charged with basically inflating his income and downplaying his debts when he was applying for millions of dollars in loans to banks. He was found guilty of two of the bank fraud charges that he was uh, that he was charged with. And the jury hung on the remaining bank fraud charges and the bank fraud conspiracy charges. Those counts really depended on what relationship Manafort had in defrauding banks with his former longtime associate, Rick Gates, who had been charged with Manafort. He then pleaded guilty, agreed to cooperate, and was the government's star witness at trial. So the jury was unable to reach a consensus on whether there was a conspiracy, on whether he engaged in certain bank fraud, um, but they ultimately found him guilty of the, the broad set of allegations, just not all each of the counts. That was exhausting to listen yeah, to. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. Uh, Trump, we- I've never learned so much about tax accounting <laughs> and been so involved in the world of accounting. So ask very me anything. Thorough. That yeah. sounds very <laughs> fascinating. Uh, so Trump just tweeted about 30 minutes ago, and it seems like he's focusing on the fact that Manafort uh, did not get charged with everything or did not get found guilty of everything he was charged with. He wrote, a large number of counts, 10 could not even be decided in the Paul Manafort case witch hunt. So it seems like his tactic may be to focus on the fact there was a hung jury on more counts that he was found guilty of. But what do you think is going to happen with these mistrial counts? Can they be refiled or do you think they're just kind of going to go away? The government has a week to tell the court whether they plan to come back and retry these 10 charges. They certainly can do that. Uh, I think the, the thing to keep in mind, though, is that in less than a month from now, All of these same people are going to be back in court, this time in the federal district court in Washington, D.C., for Manafort's second trial out of Mueller's investigation. There is a whole other indictment that's pending against him on separate but somewhat related charges having to do with his work in Ukraine, this time whether he failed to register as an agent with the U.S. government. There are also charges of obstruction of justice for uh, allegations that he tried to interfere with potential witnesses earlier this year when new charges came down. So everyone already has to look ahead to this other trial. And there's also an appeal pending from Manafort uh, about the fact that he's been in jail in pretrial detention since June uh, out of the D.C. case where the judge there found that there were no conditions that she felt could satisfy uh, her need to protect the community after these new allegations of witness tampering came up. She's put him in jail. Um, so they're fighting an appeal on that. And I think that's going to factor into whether prosecutors think it's worth going after these 10 other counts when they got convictions. Yeah in these subject areas, just not across the board. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to do this all over again, Zoe. Uh, oh, same. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about what happens now uh, with, let's, I'm going to bring Chris back in as well, and we'll try and double uh, talk Ooh, this fancy. here. Ooh, uh, fancy. Chris, hey. Chris, we know. Hi, Chris. That, hi, there you go. Hey. Everyone's friends here. <laughs> uh, Chris, we know that Cohen, as we said, has implicated the president in a federal crime. And the obvious question is, will they charge the president with campaign finance violations? And can they even do that? I mean, this is one of those sort of unknown questions. Uh, The DOJ, the Justice Department has had a a longstanding position that a sitting president cannot be indicted. 
Um, and there's no reason to believe that the Southern District of New York would not follow that longstanding uh, procedure. Um, I think that it's it's up in the air what's going to happen. Um, there also were there were a bunch of other people who who were unnamed but played a, a key role in uh, in the crimes to which uh, Cohen pleaded guilty to yesterday. And so I think there's the, it's not just Trump who is at is at risk here, right. but but these other people who were involved in this. Right. And Trump could also pardon Cohen, couldn't he? But what has Cohen's team said about that? I mean, Lanny Davis has said that he is not looking for and would not accept a pardon. Uh, Lanny Davis is is one of Cohen's lawyers. Um, that's what he said, and I, I I think that that based on sort of the the position that they are taking, they are not making him. Uh, as opposed to the way that Manafort has been acting, the way that Cohen is acting is much more aggressive, much more antagonistic to the president. And it really, it, it doesn't look like Lanny Davis is just saying that with a wink and a nod. It, it I mean, they're taking actions that, that are not going to make the president happy. So, Well, Zoe, uh, for you, what, what, what is next for Manafort specifically? Because he's already in prison, as you said. He could also be pardoned, couldn't he? Or he could choose to start cooperating with the Mueller inquiry, right? That He could, but I think as much as Chris was saying Cohen has been sort of aggressive against the president, Manafort has been aggressive towards Robert Mueller and the special counsel's mm -hmm. office. He has really fought these charges tooth and nail from the beginning. He even sued separately the Justice Department to try and challenge Mueller's authority. And he's lost on all fronts, um, but he has clearly earned the respect and admiration of the president. We've seen tweets about uh, lamenting the fact that Manafort was jailed before his trial. Um, we saw a series of tweets this morning from the president saying that he felt badly for Manafort and his family, that, you know, unlike Cohen, Trump even made the comparison, unlike Cohen, he said, you know, Manafort didn't quote unquote break. Um, he said he had great respect for Manafort. So, you know, whether Manafort is angling for a pardon, and that's why he's willing to see this all the way to the end. You know, we've heard nothing from Manafort's lawyers that indicate they're going to plead out now in anticipation of the DC trial, which which could happen. But we've gotten no indication or any hint even from Manafort's lawyers that that's going to happen. So what's next is getting ready for a whole other trial. And that starts September 17th, I believe, is jury selection. So we'll all be back in action for that. September 17th, so close Let's to now. Yeah. Let's do it again. <laughs> Zoe, Chris, you guys are fabulous. Thank you for walking us through these insane two days of news. <laughs> sure thing. <laughs> Thanks. Well, we will be talking to Tarini Party later about what this all means uh, for the Trump administration. But let's move on now to this tweet from BuzzFeed News' Charlie Warzel. I sat down with at Jack and asked about a whole bunch of things, including harassment, deleting old tweets, whether there's a line Trump can cross to get banned, why he spoke with Sean Hannity, and if an, quote, unbiased Twitter can even exist. Charlie published that wide-ranging interview with Twitter's CEO yesterday, and he joins us now. Charlie, what was the most surprising thing that Jack told you? 
Wow. Um, <laughs> I would say that the most surprising thing is, is more that he's very willing to talk to now both me and a lot of other journalists as he has over the past week. Um, yet I don't think there's really a lot for Twitter to talk about. Um, I think that, uh, I think that, uh, you know, given a lot of the conversations we're all having around social networks and free, uh, free speech and, and, and this idea of, you know, who can stay up on platforms who can't, uh, I think that the Twitter really wanted to sort of clear the air on a couple positions and sort of engage in, in, in a dialogue with journalists. But I think at the same time, you know, a lot of the answers to the questions I asked him were, um, were sort of either speculative or uh, focused on the idea that, you know, Twitter is actively evolving and working to be better in the future. So in, in terms of what I think is actually the most surprising thing was that there, there wasn't a lot of, um, of, you know, of hard news for Twitter about, you know, ways that they're going to try to fix the service. Uh, I, I think one thing that was fascinating is he did sort of admit that, um, you know, that Twitter could make politics and discourse more toxic. Um, he seems to be very open to the idea that, um, that the incentive structures inside Twitter, meaning maybe, you know, follower counts, um, and some of those metrics that we're all obsessed with, um, might actually really be contributing to, uh, to like flat discourse and, and, and sort of gamification and we're, it kind of drives us all insane. <laughs> <laughs> There was a lot of pushback from journalists uh, who felt that Jack kind of was putting it all on us or them to clear up some of the fake news on Twitter. Did he clear the air on that at all? Because I know that was a big issue. Um, you know, I think that there is this respect that he that he has for journalists. But I think at the same time, um, you know, a piece that sort of didn't make it into the interview um, the transcript that, that we have, and we will be publishing more on this later, um, had to do with the idea that journalists can spot a lot of this, a lot of, you know, harassment, a lot of, um, trolling, a lot of, you know, misinformation and, and sort of bot campaigns, uh, almost quicker and more effectively than, than Twitter can itself. And so, you know, one of the questions I asked was simply, um, why aren't you guys better at this if, you know, individual journalists can, can do this so well. And, you know, he, he, his answer to that was sort of that we are very keyed into a very specific section of Twitter. And, you know, really there wasn't necessarily a great answer to that. I think, um, I think Twitter simply probably doesn't want to make the human investment in a, you know, a specific task force to go out and, and find these things in the way that journalists can. Um, I think he realizes, though, that that's a strain on reporters and, and it's a lot of pressure to put on, uh, on journalists in general. But, you know, it, as, as with a lot of the answers, it didn't feel like there was anything, you know, extremely satisfying coming out. There was a sort of understanding on Jack's end that things, you know, need to be better. That This is a, you know, a heavy kind of uh, toxic place to, to spend a lot of time in. Um, especially in the realms of like politics and technology. Um, but I, you know, he's, he's very optimistic, probably, you know, more optimistic than most people are about the service that not only can they continue to make changes, but also that, that Twitter has, has made a lot of changes already. 
Can I just ask, uh, finally, uh, you were talking about him and his relationship with news and journalists. He's gone on Sean Hannity's show, uh, even before he's talked to us, shall we say, but I, I, he, there's been this movement on the conservative side, right, where they've been arguing that Twitter has it out for them and social networks have it out for them. What, what did he say about his decision to do so many interviews with big prominent conservatives, uh, people like Sean Hannity? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really tried to, to push on that because, it's, I, you know, I, I brought up in, in our interview, you know, things like the Seth Rich conspiracy uh, that, that Hannity had promoted and just, you know, basically putting trust in being interviewed by, you know, s- someone who has a, a somewhat unreliable um, track record. And, and he basically said that he is not actually talking to Sean Hannity when he's talking to Sean Hannity, that he's talking to the people instead that listen to him. And that simply the fact that, you know, that they listen to Sean Hannity on a regular basis and, and Jack appeared on his radio show, not his television show, um, that they listen to Sean Hannity uh, doesn't disqualify them from being reached about, about Twitter. And in fact, perhaps they are the most important, he argues, people to reach about the fact that Twitter does not make decisions based off of political bias. So, you know, in his realm, he sees this as genuinely, uh, as a genuine attempt to reach out and, and find those people. Um, and, and, you know, he, I, I think there's a, there's a bit of a disconnect on that too, because, uh, you know, Jack came out uh, in interviews this past week and said, admitted that he has his own personal bias towards the left, which um, does not, he said, factor into Twitter's product at all. And yet all that sort of candid admission uh, that he made in good faith was really weaponized by people on the far right in bad faith. So when I tried to explain, you know, don't you see this, he, he wasn't really willing to engage on that and simply just said, I'm going to continue to reach out and talk to people of, you know, of all ideological dispositions. Fair enough. Yeah. Thanks, Charlie. <laughs> we are- yeah, that was uh, an interesting interview, and we're going to tweet it out, so make sure you take a read. Yeah, it's interesting that he sounds like it's more of, you know, pie-in-the-sky, opaque, broader ideas when I feel like everyone is really yeah. having questions about specific issues. Yeah, but very true. We'll see. <laughs> okay, we're not done talking about the Trump administration's very bad day in court. We're going live from the district with Trini Party in a moment, but up next, it's Fire Tweets. Give you a little break. <laughs> I need a break, yeah. That's right, the B team is back and we are here with uh, fire tweets that are all themed around yesterday's insanity of news. I know, uh, I know. We said so we many. would give you guys a break, but we can't. Our mind is, we have a one track mind right now and that's what we're doing. So you're Take ready? Take it away. Benji. Okay, this is some different news. Nicki Minaj feuding with celebrities, baby, sounds like something Jenna Maroney would do as a B-plot in an th- episode of 30 Rock. That is so true. I feel like that might have been a Jenna Maroney. We don't have time for you today, Nikki. No time. Here we go. <laughs> Profile producer Deb Bose tweeted, Today was one of those days when a Nazi war criminal getting deported was only a medium important story. Yeah, that, that was... I don't think anyone covered that. I got lost. We yeah. love you, Deb. Okay. <laughs> Alexis Ned. It's like the season finale of the USA is over in eight minutes and the writers are just shoveling storylines into an incinerator to make room for the plots they really want to get to next 
season. Next season's gonna be lit. I can't wait. I'm excited. It's gonna oh, be. Oh, it's the election. Almost. Must see viewing. Here we go. Max Reed. Some people miss Gorka because they think it would be a strong voice against Trump, but I miss Gorka because if it still existed, at least there would be one site brave and foolhardy enough to collect all the Azalea Banks crime screenshots in one place. I love that. We didn't story. even get time to talk about this today. I love it. It's, I love it. It's drama all over the timeline. But anyway, here we go. Keep all going. All right. Our old producer, Jesse, who's now in LA, we miss you. This is the part of the Scorsese movie where Michael Cohen's narration stops and he starts directly talking to camera. Record Statch, you probably under wondered yeah. why I ended up in this situation. In this situation. <laughs> Here we go, this is me. Here we go, our producer, Julia Moza, quoting Trump, when you decide not to buy Wi-Fi on a flight. Congrats, Julia, on your megabyte tweet. We're uh, so proud of you. This was when the president landed in Virginia, West Virginia and was like, I can't wait, everyone's here, we're having a great time, and clearly hadn't really been paying attention to the news of yeah. the day. Follow Wednesday, Julia. Anyway, okay, you ready? Tweet of the day, here we go. This is a special one from our friend Michael Cohen. Hillary Clinton. When you go to prison for defrauding America and perjury, your room and board will be free. That is from uh, 2015, you can see. Uh, and last night, he deleted that tweet. I wonder why. If you think we're even remotely done discussing all the news that broke yesterday, you clearly weren't listening to those tweets because up next, we are going live from the district. So stay tuned. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News White House correspondent Tarini Party. Good morning, Tarini. Good morning, guys. You you look uh, you look battered and bruised from yesterday's day of news. Where were you when the news happening happened? So I was at the BuzzFeed DC office, just yelling at the TV and Twitter, like <laughs> I think most people were in those. Uh, moments or hours or days, whatever they were. <laughs> well, you have some lovely sunflowers behind you, so yes, at least that that'll brighten nice, your day a little bit. Very beautiful. So here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Trump's nightmare day. His former campaign chair, Paul Manafort, was convicted of fraud. His longtime lawyer, Michael Cohen, pleaded guilty to federal charges. One of his earliest supporters, Rep. Duncan Hunter, was charged with misusing campaign funds. Whew. Trini, what was the mood in the White House during yesterday's terrible, no good, very bad day? So the president was traveling to West Virginia as all of this was happening. But I think the immediate concern from people I spoke with uh, in and around the White House was what is he going to say when he lands in West Virginia? You know, the, the president usually watches Fox News when he's on Air Force One. And, you know, it was going to be unclear as soon as he landed if he was going to actually address the Cohen or Manafort uh, situations, what he was going to say at the rally later that night. So I think that was the immediate concern beyond just the shock and, oh, my God, what do we do now? type situation. And then tell us about this rally. What what did he actually say last night? Did he hit on any of this? So the president spoke for a very, very long time at the rally, but he didn't really get into the details of the Manafort situation or the Cohen situation. He did kind of broadly talk about the witch hunt and he did say, you know, there's no collusion, where's the collusion, find the collusion, things like that. But he didn't quite address the situations more specifically. But when he landed in West Virginia before the rally, he did defend Paul Manafort briefly. He talked about how Paul Manafort is a good 
man, something he said in the past. Uh, he talked about how Paul Manafort has been treated unfairly and how he actually worked for various past uh, Republican figures in an effort to try to distance himself and the Trump campaign from Paul Manafort. Yeah, it seems we read his uh, responses on Twitter this morning, and it seems like his answer is kind of to be like, this has nothing to do with me, this is nothing to do with me, and almost like kind of make it seem like it's not as big of a deal as it is. Do you think that's going to keep working for his supporters, or do you think he's eventually going to have to address this more head on? I think we're going to keep seeing that from not just the president, but if, you know, in the White House, uh, his allies are going to continue to push that message. But I think the important thing to keep in mind is that in 2016, when I was at these rallies, when I was talking to Trump voters, the one thing that they brought up is, you know, the president doesn't have any political experience, but he'll do big things. He'll hire the best people because Trump had repeatedly told them that he would be hiring the best people. And now we have two of his top former associates in court yesterday, one convicted of eight charges and one pleading guilty to eight counts. We had Chris on yesterday, uh, this, earlier rather, telling us about how, uh, I'm losing all track of time, uh, lose, telling us about how uh, prosecutors could potentially, what they might do about charging the president. This is, his lawyer has implicated him in a federal crime here, but this now could potentially make the midterms even more about impeachment before uh, now than they were before, right? Aren't we just going to be having a midterms all about whether or not to impeach the president? So it, you're absolutely right. So, it, it, you know, with the Manafort case, you know, it's reasonable for the president to distance himself from that case. But with Cohen, well, now that he's directly dragged in pre the president and said that the campaign finance violations were directed by and in coordination with the candidate, as he calls him, um, which the candidate was obviously Donald Trump, that is hard for the president to distance himself from. And so we're going to see now this become a big topic in the midterms. Uh, before uh, what happened yesterday, Republicans kind of viewed this impeachment discussion as a positive thing for them because it showed that Democrats weren't really focused on the issues and were just unfairly targeting the president. And, they, you know, there was some polling that reflected that. But now that there is actually things happening uh, that, that actually dragged the president directly into um, this campaign finance violation with Cohen, um, I think both sides are going to try to use this issue. We're going to see Democrats, you know, in the past we saw mostly Democrats on sort of the fringe, not really the leadership encouraging this impeachment issue, but we could actually see a credible, credible argument now from Democrats on uh, impeachment heading into the midterms. Trini, I want to switch gears a little bit because I am very interested in all of the drama surrounding my hometown congressman, mm -hmm. Duncan Hunter, <laughs> whose scandal kind of got swept under the rug yesterday amid all of this. So what is going on with him? So Duncan Hunter, who was the second member of Congress to endorse Donald Trump, uh, was indicted yesterday for um, essentially using campaign funds for personal use. So he, he used up to $250,000 in campaign funds for things like, you know, shot 30 shots at a tequila bar or, um, you know, paying for trips to Italy, things like that for his family rather than using those funds for campaign purposes. 
Oh my God. My family group chat is lit over this because <laughs> we, yeah, we, uh, I actually went to high school with one of his relatives. Oh, so it's, it's, it's all, it's all, it's all going on right now. <laughs> uh, Tarini, I want to go to one of your tweets. You tweeted, here's how Omarosa describes loyalty in Trump's view. His mob-like loyalty requirements are exacting, imperishable, and sometimes unethical. Loyalty to him is an absolute and unyielding necessity akin to followers' devotion to a cult leader. Uh, Tarini, this was from a great story you wrote, but I want to know, in light of these Manafort and Cohen news, what does loyalty look like in Trump's world right now? So we're already seeing this discussion of loyalty and what that means for the president play out in his tweets this morning. You know, he's describing Manafort as this great guy and he's essentially throwing Cohen under the bus. And he says it's because uh, Cohen, um, you know, they broke Cohen, but they didn't break Manafort. So he's essentially now viewing Manafort as a loyalist and Cohen as a rat, <laughs> because that's what the, the word he used this past weekend. Um, and it, it really showed a lot about his worldview, you know, how he views uh, people essentially in, in two forms, people who are loyal to him and people who are going to essentially stab him in the back or turn out to be rats. So who do you think are other examples of people who are quote unquote loyalists or rats, exclamation point? So I think the the clear rat right now uh, is Amorosa as well, besides just Michael Cohen. And then you're seeing loyalists like Corey Lewandowski really play up their sort of loyalist card. Um, you know, he was asked last week in a discussion with reporters um, about uh, people like Amorosa. And he kind of said, I wrote a book that praised the president and she's writing a book that, you know, uh, has unverified claims and really disparages the president. So we'll see people... Um, like Corey, really build up their loyalist connection and play that up with the president. But also, Trump is a paranoid person, as we have seen in, in the past two years. And so he's really going to be playing this game more and more in his head. Who is a loyalist? Who is someone he can trust? And who is someone who's actually going to hurt him now that he's seeing the situations with both Cohen and Omarosa play out? Well, thank you so much, Tarini. Thanks so much. I hope she enjoys whatever's cooking in that crock pot. I know, I know, the Instant Pot. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Up next, I speak with Alana Bennett about To All the Boys I Loved Before. A little bit of a nicer segment. I started watching about. it last night. It's really I good. I haven't started. Here's a tweet from our own Alana Bennett. I love how starved we all are for good feelings that I've seen like 50 people on this timeline, myself included, just spend the weekend watching a movie that came out on Friday on repeat. That movie is to all the boys I've loved before. And Alana joins us now to tell us why it deserves watching on repeat. Alana, thank you so much for coming on. Hello, glad to be here. So since you're a special uh, BuzzFeed movie reviewer person, you got to see this movie a few months ago before all of us. Did you know it was going to be something that made such a big splash? I knew people would like it because I watched it and it gave me so many warm and fuzzy feelings and I uh, had a hard time keeping to myself how much I loved it in the months after that, but I didn't expect it to hit quite as hard as it did. Like I knew that it would be popular, but it's really hitting people like right where they live, which is really interesting. And you said that To All the Boys I've Loved Before is the kind of movie that reminds you of why rom-coms exist. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, it deals with a lot of the rom-com tropes um, really 
interestingly, but it, it feel makes it feel fresh and it makes the chemistry between the leads makes it really pop and makes it really stick with you in what feels like a new way, even if you've seen a thousand rom-coms before. So it just it reminds you why the genre is so comforting and nice. One of the things we've been seeing on the timeline is people losing their minds over the movie's leading man, Peter mm -hmm. Gavinsky, who is played by Noah Centineo. Centineo? Why is he such a compelling love interest? And what makes him different from the you know, rom-com leading men of the past? Um, a, a couple different things. One of the things is that Noah Centineo, he's just so charismatic, he has charisma like popping out of every pore. Uh, I saw somebody describe him as a mix between Mark Ruffalo and Jess Mariano from Gilmore Girls, and oh that's just God. a very potent com I mean, combination. Very good right there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and also his character is so conscientious in this story. He's, he respects the boundaries that the um, leading girl character sets up in their fake relationship. He is, and he's, but he also challenges her at the same time. So he's very respectful, but he's also exciting. So maybe he has a little bit more depth than yes. men, leading men yes. of the past. Yes. You also tweeted, I feel like a lot of actors stopped wanting to do rom-coms because they wanted to be taken seriously. LOL, don't get me started on the systems that built that state of mind. But I want more of them to realize how good of a breakout role a rom-com can be. That's really, really smart. So how do you think this role of Lara Jean is going to be a breakout for actress Lana Condor? Well, she did so well in this role. She really, like her, the expressions that her face makes, her face is so agile. She shows a lot of comedic chops, a lot of really big emotional chops. We've seen her in an X-Men movie before, so we know she can do action. We've, and now with this, we know that she has the emotional range too. And I think that people should pay a lot of attention to that because she really grounds this movie and sells this movie. I think what you are kind of getting at in your tweet is, you know, say an action movie is supposed is kind of a big breakout quote unquote yeah. role for uh, actors, probably because it's something yes. men enjoy watching, exactly. whereas a rom com is silly, and that's because yes. it's something maybe women enjoy more. Yes, it's very which, feminized. You know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, do you feel like maybe this is changing? We've been talking with Set It Up and this movie about maybe rom coms are coming back. Mm. Because a lot of, you know, a lot of breakout roles I remember from many actors of like the 90s and 2000s were in rom-coms. Yeah, I, th I hope that it is coming back. I, Crazy Rich Asians did really well in the box office. Um, this is doing well supposedly on Netflix. We never see Netflix numbers, but everyone's talking about it. So I feel like that's what that means. Uh, and I hope that it, people will take it more seriously as, you know, another genre, another art form that it's not like, it doesn't need to just be relegated as a chick flick. Although what is wrong with being a movie that women enjoy? <laughs> yeah, I mean, even that name chick flick like is exactly. a little like, uh, yeah. you know, making it seem like it's right. not as important. Whereas, yeah. you know, if you've ever watched any Marvel movies, mm -hmm. no offense. Listen, I love them, but. Yeah, it's not like they have so much substance. Yeah. <laughs> That's just my rant for the day. Well, Alana, I can't wait to watch this movie. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Up next, Chantal sits down with Terrence J. Don't go away. I'm Sean
Chantal Fallins, and this is The Sit Down. I'm here with Terrence J, actor, producer, and host of Safe Word on MTV. Good morning, Terrence. Look at you, Houston repping. Houston representing, North Carolina repping. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> South How did it. How you doing? I'm doing well. So I'm I just great. watched the MTV and VMAs this past Monday. Oh, thank you. You did an amazing job on the red carpet. I appreciate How that. How was that? It was so much fun. J-Lo was there. Queen. You know, I saw the... you. Told her to punch you in the stomach. That was iconic. I mean, because, you know, you keep seeing her Instagram <laughs> photos. I don't know what she's been doing. Whatever regiment yes. she's on, we need to get on Same. that. Same. J-Lo, please let us know. We got to get it? on that. I don't gotta know. Get it. We got to get it. I need to know out. what it is. Uh -huh. So you are executive producing yes. and hosting the new, I mean, it's a second season yep. of Safe Word at MTV. What appeals to you about pushing celebrities outside of their comfort zone on social media? Yeah, you, it still feels new to me, too. Yeah. You know, it's it's a fun show. I just think, you know, we're all so buttoned up. And and now we're in such a, a society where everything you can say can get you into trouble mm -hmm. that we, you know, we decided to flip the script and play the joke on the fans. So now when, when you tweet out something crazy on Safe Word, yeah. you, you, we're all in on it. And everybody at home is like, what is, what is yeah. going on? So we, we, we find a lot of joy. That. What's the craziest episode so far that you feel like you've shot? Uh, Amber Rose was really hard to control. Oh, was she? Yeah, you can't, you can't really, <laughs> you know, Charlemagne was crazy oh, Charlemagne, too. I bet. Um, this season, we had a lot more squirmy people. Mm -hmm. Like Michael B. Jordan was real, he was oh, real man. nervous on what was gonna happen. And then Diddy and Khaled, you know, that's a lot of fun. Puff has never done a show like this. So to, to watch him in those type of scenarios and see his reactions, oh, it, it was a lot of fun. And speaking of Diddy and Khaled, you also have Tiffany Haddish and Jimmy Fox. Yep. What's your favorite duo that you see on the show so far? Uh, Puff and Khaled was fun. Tiffany Haddish and Jamie Foxx was a, was a lot of fun. Um, T.I. and Lauren London Ooh. was fun to watch. Okay. And, and then we have, you know, we have phone calls as well. So, you know, Michael B. Jordan called Issa Rae. So it was fun to watch Issa and Mike's conversation and she had no idea. She didn't all know you of calling. Our, no, she had no idea we were wow. all listening in. So this season is, is a lot of fun. It's full of surprises. It's really exciting. Yeah. So you've been in the media business for over 15 years I'm now. I'm really old. Your, listen, you don't look it. This is so a we lot can't of tell. makeup, a lot you of. cannot tell My hairline is sprayed <laughs> on. This is not even a real thing. You got your big break on 106 in Park, which is the most iconic show of all time, one of my personal favorites, the highest rated music series on BET ever. Oh, that, I mean, wow. what was it like being a part of that show and taking over for a free and AJ? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, you know, that was at a point in my life when I, I was sleeping on the couch. Ooh. You know, my brother Fred, who is here, we were, you know, commuting hours to just get to New York City. Mm -hmm. And I had just graduated college and I had all this student debt yeah. and, and, and money to pay back. And so it wasn't really a thing of like looking at it like, oh, this is so big, this yeah. is so great. It was like, oh my God, I can eat now. Oh my <laughs> God, I don't, you know, I can take a girl yeah. on an actual date and pay for a cheeseburger. New clothes, new swag. Exactly. Yeah. I have sneakers being sent to me. Oh my God. So yeah, it was it was more of those things. I you know, now I look back and I'm like, wow, there were some really big TV moments and, and we got to make I, I guess history. I mean, who can forget your but, Janet Jackson moment? Like yeah. you had some iconic moments on that show. I did. It was so I good. Did. And after BET's 106 of Park, you went on to be the first black male co-host for E News. Oh yeah. What was that experience like at E News compared to BET? Um, you know, completely different. You know, I, I, you went from doing this hip hop show and, and using, you know, your, your street vernacular yeah. to, to going on a show like E! News and, and showing everyone that you can conjugate a verb. So it was it was really interesting. 
to be in the elevator with Ryan Seacrest and, and Juliana Rancic and Jason Kennedy and all those guys. It was a lot of fun, but it, it was definitely using a complete different skill set, you know, and, and it, it was good to have that level of growth. And I learned a lot during my time there that I'm able to, to apply to the things that I'm doing now. Oh, wow. So do you think enough is being done to make sure there's enough diverse talent in front and behind the camera? Hell no. I think, <laughs> you know, I, I think, you know, especially when I do, you know, you do your rounds of interviews, mm -hmm. there, there, there is... 1,000% a need for more diverse yeah. talent. I want to see more black female mm -hmm. uh, talent on, yeah. on air. I want to see bigger opportunities. I want to see more equal pay. I still think, you know, we, we've done a lot, but there still needs to, to be more. And and now, you know, you, there's not uh, enough Hispanic representation, I don't feel. There's not enough Asian American representation. Uh, LGBTQ community needs to be represented more. I, I just feel like there needs to be more growth and diversity across the board, um, not just with, with black people. Absolutely, diversity across the board is so true. And you are doing so much right now. You have another show on MTV, Are You The One, that you also executive produce and host. You have your production company, you're in films, you're in a relationship, you do it all. Yeah. How do you t find the time to balance all of this? I actually have a twin no one knows about. <laughs> What's your he, twin's name? My, uh, Marco, Marco. <laughs> yeah, we call Marco Polo and then he pops up. Uh, no, you know, it's just, it's having the right team around you um, and having the right infrastructure. I have a really strong team. And so they allow me to be able to do, uh, a, a, have a multi-hyphenate persona without having to be mm -hmm. in all these places at once. And then, you know, just, it, it's like being in school, right? Mm -hmm. when, when you're in, in high school and college and you have all these different classes and you just have to learn how to balance them. Yeah. For me, it's just, you know, I'm at a place where it's learning how to balance it. The bigger thing I want to balance now is just more time with my French Bulldogs. Aww. Yeah, so <laughs> I've, been, I've been bringing one of them along. The other one's bad. So. You brought your, uh, your Dog to the VMA red carpet. Yeah, didn't you? yeah, yeah. Rocky <laughs> was there. He's the good one. He's the he, he gets rewarded by VMA days. My other one is bad. So yeah, she, you're like only still, good one. <laughs> yeah, she's still getting trained. So with all this that you're doing, speaking of balancing, what's your ultimate end goal? What's your your thing? Like I, I have to get to this goal. You know, I used to have those, um, and now it's just like making every day good. Mm. Right. Because like who knows what your end goal is going to be. Tomorrow could be it or it could be 50 years from now. Right. Uh -huh. And you have no control over that. The the only thing you do have control over is making every single moment of the, the day that you're in as pleasant as possible. Right. Excellent. And looking people in the eye and having good conversations and connections and hopefully leaving your mark in a way that can inspire somebody else to go after their dreams or just make their day better. Yeah. Right. And so that's all I really try to do now is, you know, the, there's there's no real big difference in having a, a, a hundred million dollars or having a, a billion dollars, right? You can buy more things, but if you're not happy, it doesn't matter either way. So it's just about making every moment of every day as, as good as possible. Amazing, as just can. living in the moment, taking it day by day. Yeah, that's it's all amazing. we got, right? So since you like to play games with celebrities, we thought we'd play a game with you. Oh, I'm not doing Listen. no game. I told your producer, <laughs> we had a talk in the back. I told the sound, I told Kate, I told all of them. I'm not doing no games well, with you. Look, these are going to be, you know, I think you'll enjoy them. So these games, we're going to read you two options. And can you I can see the scripts? You could choose would you rather, and you can choose safe word. So if you don't want to answer, you can say safe word, and you're going to go on to an alternative question. You have to answer that one. Are you ready? This lets me know how much my show is a <laughs> terrible show. Listen, you got to be part of it. This is a lot of pressure. I don't even know Are what you, you got set up. I'm ready. Okay. I hope so. The first one, would you rather take relationship advice from Future or Fetty Wap? <sighs> 
That's a good. I think I'm, I'm gonna take it from Future. Okay, Future. Future, Future gets a lot of. Well, both Fetty Wap and Future get safe word. What's my safe word? Okay, so I'm supposed to come over say. I'm using my safe word. Are you going to propose to your girlfriend, Jasmine Sanders? I am. Yes, awesome, amazing. Okay, so your next one. But that hold up. I mean, because people on Twitter that can make it seem like I'm about to do it. Okay. Maybe I shouldn't even answer that. That's a safe word. <laughs> safe, safe word. word. <laughs> I don't. Okay, what celebrity has been the most difficult to work with? Um. What celebrity has been the most difficult to work? Kevin Hart. Okay. Yeah, because Kev is really hard to work with him because like you've done a movie with him too. Two of them, and, um, and and both of them equally as difficult because like you're trying to focus on your lines. Your friend. Yeah, you, and and he just keeps on playing, and then in between takes when you're trying to read your script mm -hmm. and get focused, he'll just start going off on somebody on set, and uh -huh. it'll be so funny to watch. Yeah. And he'll just do it, and then you just can't concentrate, and then he's so much better than everybody else, right? <laughs> that when, once the camera turns on then you're like oh i don't know my lines because kevin already knew what he has going on and then improvises during wow. scenes as well okay then goes off on a comedy so and he's then, just going off yeah you just don't know what to <laughs> you do never know what to it's too hard kevin. to work with him. all right yeah. next one would you rather listen to Nicki minaj's album queen for a week straight on repeat or cardi b's album invasion of privacy safe word <laughs> i'm taking one of these pillows i deserve one of these am dm pillows if you could choose any other job outside of this what would it be I'd be a teacher. Would you? What yeah. would you teach? I would be like a college professor. Oh, would you? Yeah, and I, I would do like communications. Okay. And I would like teach about like radio and, and film. I still might do it, but yeah, I would be like a communications right. teacher. Well, you passed that, Terry. Yeah. Oh, I did. I don't think I did, actually. <laughs> you did good. You did I used my job. safe word every other time. It's okay. So balance. Think, yeah. Balance, like you said. You got to balance it out. I'm still well, keeping Terrence. this pillow. <laughs> you, you squeeze onto that pillow really right. tight. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> the second me. season of Safe Word premieres on Friday, August 24th at 11 p.m. Up next, we are talking talking about the nationwide prison strike. Stay tuned. Well, yesterday, writer Marissa Cabas tweeted, people in prisons across at least 17 states will start a prison strike today to protest inhuman treatment, poultry wages, racist policies, among other things. I'm joined now by Hermon Lopez, senior reporter at Vox, who is covering the strikes, which start today. Good morning. Good morning. Can you talk us through why are these strikes happening? Sure. So it first started in South Carolina. There were prison riots earlier this year. And that's really where this began, because the inmates there argued that what really kicked off those riots, what really forced their hand, it is essentially these bad prison conditions, which put like inmates in, in cells with like rival gang members, uh, just created a lot of tensions. And since then, it's really grown into a national movement out of South Carolina and turned more into about this prison labor issue, which is something that, uh, that is uh, like allowed across the country. Essentially, inmates are often used for what's really cheap labor, sometimes free labor. They're, they're not paid at all. Sometimes they're forced into this work. And so since then, it's really become this, this pro wider protest, wider strike about not, not just poor prison conditions, but also prison labor as well. Sure. We mentioned, uh, we want to talk a bit more about this prison labor issue in a second, but uh, can you give us a sense of how, what the scope is of these protests? We heard 17 states there, but do we know how many prisoners are taking part? We, we don't have a good idea of how many inmates are taking part. You know, like you said, it's at least 17 states believed to be. The, the, the reason we don't know is because it's often really hard to get this information in prison. I mean, in, in one, one example is in 2016, when there were similar protests about prison labor, 
that the, the first day of the protest, it was actually unclear whether they were even going on. And over the following weeks, we started hearing reports, more and more reports of inmates taking part. And by the end of it, uh, about at least 12 states took part in those 2016 protests and about 24,000 inmates are believed to have taken part. And that, that was the biggest strike slash protest in prisons up to that point. So you mentioned there's some of the difficulties in trying to get some of the information out of the prison. Then my question is, how do you begin to organize a strike amongst prisoners in different prisons, given they, I imagine, find it pretty hard to communicate with each other? Right. It's it's very difficult. Uh, a lot of this is happening, like inmates communicating through their lawyers and then lawyers communicate through their own groups and, and word of mouth spreads that way. Some inmates are perhaps contacting each other through like contraband cell phones and things like that. They're also communicating through legal means. So like to the extent that they have access to email and phone calls and whatnot, they're helping spread word of mouth there. But the idea is it is to just spread word of mouth because, as, as you just said, it, it's inherently difficult to get this information out. From within a prison inmates have lots of restrictions on how they communicate so they're making do but the the expectation is over the next three weeks as these demonstrations take off that word of mouth will spread and more and more places will participate let's talk about this prison labor issue these are prisoners who are doing uh, as you said kind of manual work manual labor making things uh, my question is how is this legal well, in the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, it's pretty explicit. So this this amendment was supposed to abolish slavery. And uh, the, the problem, according to inmates, is that it left a very clear exception for people punished by crime. So people can still be forced into involuntary servitude or slavery as a punishment for their crime. And, and that's essentially what allows us across the U.S. And what kind of companies are using this prison labor and how are they using it? So it's actually really difficult to find out what companies are doing it now. But in the past, we have heard reports of like Victoria's Secret or Starbucks making use of it, um, whether it's to make coffee beans or panties or something like that. that that's something that we've heard reports of. Uh, usually it's difficult to find out because companies do not want to be associated with prison labor, as, as you can probably imagine. So, so that makes it difficult. But it's also worth emphasizing here that it's not just private companies, it's also states. So in like California, uh, they, they, there's, this gets a lot of attention every year when there are wildfires. The state actually uses inmate firefighters, right. which they pay $1 an hour plus $2 a day, which is comes out to be much, much less than like the typical firefighter who makes more than $30 an hour. So the, the state is actually benefiting from this kind of labor too, in that these inmates come much cheaper than like a, a conventional firefighter would. Yeah, dangerous work. Now, I understand the inmates have released a, a list of 10 demands that they want. What would the government need to do to, to meet these demands? So some, a, a lot of it is is just improve prison conditions and uh, they, they say abolish prison slavery. You can interpret that in two ways as to, well, you should stop forcing inmates to do this work or you should pay inmates to do this work, like a minimum wage or a prevailing wage as they call it in their demands. Um, there are also like calls to like pass laws that stop mass incarceration, reduce racial disparities in prison and help inmates uh, like like right now inmates are limited in whether how much they can sue prison officials. And there can be legal reforms to ensure that inmates actually gain some of those rights back. But but yeah, a lot of it is focused on improving prison conditions and paying inmates more for when they're required or volunteer to do this work. And that will simply cost the government more money. Improving prison conditions is, is not going to be cheap. But inmates argue that this is this is necessary, that they're like these are 
places that are supposed to treat inmates humanely. And in a lot of cases, they don't seem to. So uh, there are going to be people who will hear about this story and wonder why they should care if prisoners are being paid enough money for to do work in a prison. These are people who've been convicted of crimes, uh, that they are some very, very serious crimes for some of these people. Why, why should the average person be concerned about uh, the labour rights of these prisoners? Right. So th- I think there are two arguments here. One is it is kind of like the cold empirical argument, which is like if inmates are doing work in prison, there are studies there out there that show that um, they, they do benefit from that work. They are less likely to recidivate. And one way to encourage these inmates to do that work more often is to pay them more. Right. So if, if I'm an inmate and I'm getting paid more for this work, I'm more likely to do it. And given given these studies, then perhaps I'm going to be less likely to reoffend because I'm going to be more employable once I get out of prison. And, and that'll that'll help you down the line. The other is the, the moral ethical issue here, which is just like, do we want to live in a society that is taking advantage of people in this way? Like essentially punishing people for crimes, some crimes which people think people should, like drug offenses that people should think should not be punished for at all. And and like exploit them in that way. That, that's a moral question, but it also creates perverse incentives, right? So like one reason to continue mass incarceration is you know that you, it's going to be a source of cheap labor. And that for the government, for private companies, for prison companies, that creates all sorts of perverse incentives. And there's a question there of like whether we should really allow that as a society. Well, thanks, Hammond. Your story on this for Vox is fantastic. And uh, we look forward to continuing to follow it. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, up next, Stephanie and I are responding to your tweets after this epic show, so stay tuned. We made it. We made it to the end. I think right before the we just came on, we both yawned like 15 times. We are. This has taken a lot out of it. The news today has been a lot, and it's only going to get worse. I don't know. It feels fun. like the fun thanks, is still thanks ahead. Thanks for of that, us. David. I really want to keep working now. <laughs> we asked where you were when News Magellan happened. Saberbreaker said I was in a theater watching Crazy Rich Agent, Asians, and then my brain exploded from the news after getting out. Wow. That is a visual right there. Thanks uh, for that sound effect. Yeah, I love the idea of like having to turn on your phone after a movie and being like, what is happening? I know. Uh, this is a tweet from Pix Maven, who is a fan of <clears throat> my pipes. Oh uh, yes, please sing the headline roundup every day. I'm serious, by the way. Okay, you've been, that's challenge accepted. I'm on tomorrow. I so. love singing on the show. I've sang on the show a bunch of times. We would need oh, Julia, really? yeah, Julia Reinstein on to help us come up with the like, Oh yeah, we need, all right. I mean, that's where we give Julia work to do today. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> crack that whip. <laughs> Julia, get to work. I think we delivered what Tanya Melendez was looking for this morning. Today is bonkers, and I need a bonkers show to support the bonkery. Is bonkery a word? I'm if stealing not, it. I hope you made it up, Tanya, and let us know. Tweet us. Let us know if you thought the show was up to the challenge. Bonkery. I'm stealing that word. Thank you to our guests today, Terrence J, Chris Geidner, Zoe Tillman, Charlie Warzel, Tarini Party, Chantal Follins, Alana Bennett, and Hamon Lopez. Tomorrow I will be back with Chantal Follins. Yeah, so, peace out. Peace I'm out. gone. I'm you done. I'm done. Up, Never again. Up. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye. <laughs>